I'm Charlie Melcher, founder and director of The Future of Storytelling. Welcome to the FOSS Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure to speak with a remarkably talented trio, Zach Morris, Tom Pearson, and Janine Willett, who are the creators of Third Rail Projects, a collective that's been reimagining the boundaries of theatrical performance since 2000. They are best known for their award-winning immersive theater production, Then She Fell, which is based on the life and writings of Lewis Carroll and his relationship with Alice Liddell, the real Alice from Alice in Wonderland. I was lucky enough to fall down this magical rabbit hole of a show and was blown away by how meticulously designed the experience was. From the lush environments to the smells, tastes, objects, and interactions discovered while exploring the space and unraveling the dreamlike narrative. This intimate show for 15 participants at a time opened in 2012 and quickly became a hot ticket for fans and critics alike. The New Yorker exclaimed, wildly imaginative, wonderfully written, directed, and choreographed. Ben Brantley of the New York Times declared it one of the year's most memorable productions. And Adam Green of Vogue wrote, one of the most hauntingly lovely pieces of theater that I've ever experienced. Then she fell, sadly, fell victim to the COVID-19 pandemic and closed in 2020, having set records for immersive theater, dance, and off-Broadway with a total of 4,444 performances over the course of seven and a half years. Third Rail has gone on to create many more wonderful and acclaimed site-specific, immersive, and experiential performances, including As Time Goes By in St. Petersburg, Russia, Sweet and Lucky with the Denver Center for the Performing Arts, Ghost Light with Lincoln Center, and The Grand Paradise. Please join me in extending a warm welcome to the three co-founders and co-artistic directors of Third Rail Projects, Zach Morris, Tom Pearson, and Janine Willett. Janine, Zach, Tom, it's such a pleasure and an honor to have you on the FOSS podcast. Welcome. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, thank you. I just want to start by saying that when I went to see Then She Fell, it was the moment that I fell in love with immersive theater. It's when I really saw for the first time how completely different this was as a medium and an experience for the audience. So first, just thank you for that beautiful work and what an impact it's had in the world. Oh, thank you. I would love to understand a little bit from you about how that work came to be how three people, you three, came together to make that. Sure. Well, uh, we are very, very happily celebrating sort of our, our 20th year of collaboration. Um, the three of us have, have had the pleasure of knowing and working with each other for two decades now. And then she fell sort of hit right at the midpoint of that collaboration. Um, we had been creating work independently and collectively, but that that work was really a culmination, I think, of all of the all of the thinking and exploring that we had done prior to it, and and really sort of 
Janine, you have a really beautiful way of talking about how, how many of the things that we were ex experimenting with or exploring came together in Then She Fell. If you look at how we ultimately brought that piece together, we had a lot of different phases. Like I think it really started with a series of reveals that you were doing as an art installation. And that was in a flower shop at One New York Plaza. And it was like this amazing... I guess it was really an art piece for the tenancy where this vacant space had a tiny little hole etched in the black paint that was covering the, the windows. And the tenants could take a look and peek through this tiny hole each week. And I think it got bigger every week. And so the installation got deeper and deeper into this pretty uh, vast space. And at the same time that you were building this lush, beautiful Alice in Wonderland inspired, inspired space, we were rehearsing a site-specific work that was going to go up for Brookfield in LA, and we were rehearsing inside of that space. And it was, of course, too hard not to play in your beautiful exhibit and like and start to kind of bring some of our scenes into the the sets there. So that was that was kind of an organic merging of live performance and art installation coming together. But that had been happening for years. And I think that in that moment, that particular content was crisscrossing in different ways. And those stories were kind of evolving inside of a world that was being built at the same time. And I, I think there was something really special about that because because the notion of bringing the public performance elements and the engaging with audience in large public spaces had been something that we were interested in, but we were sort of thinking about how to distill that into smaller, more intimate areas where we could actually spend time with the audience alone for like, you know, a good portion of the performance. That word intimacy just rings so true for the experience because you really felt like you were there like it was a show just for you. I know I've heard you say in the past about this idea of caring for the audience. Can you talk a little more about that, about how you consciously think of holding their hands or bringing them through your, your work? A lot of our explorations um, had been insight-specific work, and, and Tom started doing a lot of that. And we had the pleasure of being commissioned to, to create a number of site-specific pieces. And I think one of the things that really emerged for all of us was the idea of creating works that were for the denizens of these spaces, thinking of work as an offering or a gift, um, and also thinking about the ways in which we, we wanted and needed to navigate the public. Um, and, and I think a lot of that got enfolded into this notion of care for the audience. And I know, Tom, you've thought a lot about that recently um, in terms of how, how is a work engaging with different communities? I, th I think anytime you start a process, it's a new discovery of that all over again. And especially coming out of, you know, the last couple of years of pandemic, we're relearning our own you know, our own assumptions and testing them. And, and just being back in rehearsal with folks the last couple of weeks, we're so much more tentative in some ways with each other than we ever were before. But then then that thing unlocks and the permission unlocks and the series of invitations invites you further and further in. And I think that's one of the things that was really cool about um, growing from site-specific work into this particular work when we were making Then She Fell was it was, it was suddenly the, the moment where... Um, we were devising scenarios with the audience at the center, right? So we were testing them from the very get-go, very early on, 
about what it means to actually be intuitive with an audience, give them an offer they can accept and grow a sense of trust with them. And there's like that level of nuance on one side. And then on the other, training ourselves for a sustained um, practice of quite aggressive percussive abandon with, with, with sight. And so those two counterpoints are always kind of in our work. They've always been in our work. There's been like meditative nuance on one side and, and this sort of like rigorous dynamic on the other. And to put those into an enclosed space together, you know, there's like the quiet space around an audience and then there's this, the space that you can create between you and the audience where you can do some of these crazier things like flip backwards off of a wall you know, three or four times a night. And um, for me, I, I feel like it's no one part of that was a separate process to develop. It was like thinking about the audience and relationship to all of it. Like it, at what point, and kind of like cinema in a way too, like if they're this close to you, you will blow them out of the room if you do that on that side of the room. So do it over here. And then when you're with them in that more intimate sort of question answer exchange or something that's more dialogue driven, you can you can kind of like close that sphere. I want to unpack a little more this idea of the language of interaction with the audience. I keep feeling this sense of the birth of a new medium and the need to discover its organic language because we're not used to as an audience interacting directly with the actors. We were used to the safety of the theater or the screen or, or the medium that separates us from the story uh, safely uh, from it. And were you aware of how uncomfortable that is for people in a way and, and the, this kind of bigger role that you actually were helping to play? I sometimes joke that um, I am the most uncomfortable audience for this type of thing and therefore I, I'm try to make scenes that I can handle, you know, and it doesn't mean that they're like soft core at all. It just means that they're like, they have all the steps in place because sometimes we talk about how um, basically all this boils down to is good manners, but you kind of have to learn why the manners matter and like, and what you're doing and what <laughs> you want to do. And I think it is a more recognizable active space for an audience. And that can be both exciting and terrifying. And it can also be really unhinged if they're not given the guidance they need. Because most people will do a really good job if if it's clear what a good job is, you know, and, um, and it is an act of co-creation, defined very differently amongst creators. You know, um, it might mean you're playing a role, but it in our work, most often it doesn't mean you're playing a role. It just means that you're co-creating this moment by participating in this activity. Because I think that that's what it boils down to is there's something recognizable that you step into. And then there's all of this other story and psychology and, and, and everything else that comes along with it. But there is, a, at the core of it, a structure that holds it all together and it holds the intuition in place and it helps you to go back and codify it later. I wonder, though, how much of this is just peeling away things that we've unlearned to let us get back to a natural state of play that we had as children. I played roles, games with friends, lots as a kid. I had no self-consciousness about playing a cowboy or a doctor or whatever the role was as a kid. That was natural, but then as an adult, it's like, ah, I don't play, don't touch me. We don't touch, I don't know you. 
I mean, and again, perfect for for working with with a classic, you know, Alice in Wonderland children's story, right? Because it's a character we know from childhood. Somehow, I think it's not a coincidence that you chose that to, to as your as your fertile ground for inviting the audience in to to play again. Yeah, very much so. I think as we were collectively dreaming of what an evening-length work, uh, a very intimate evening-length work might be, um, we found ourselves drawn to the Alice texts. We figured that whatever it was we were going to be creating was going to be inherently fragmented for the audience. And so what what were the ways, what were their ways in, in terms of familiar characters, um, familiar stories, something that they could latch on to? And then I think something that we both gleaned from the text and also some of the other work that we had done is just the idea of creating just thresholds and thresholds and thresholds. And I think, Charlie, maybe to answer your question about what gives us the permission to play is the ability to move through these thresholds into, you know, increasing, increasingly concentric magic circles um, that allow us to step away from the people who we were when we walked into the front doors. And, you know, we've, we've created, and in, in Then She Fell, we talk about it, it is creating liminal space and several sequential liminal spaces that afford, that afford all of us the ability to engage in ways that we don't as adults in our society right now. One thing that, that we often talk about is how, unlike a lot of other kinds of theater where you create something and it's much more fully formed and then you have your audience come and maybe you have an invited dress rehearsal or audience very much in the, the last bit or even at a preview, but for us inviting the audience in very early on is really, really crucial because you might think you're making something that is one experience, but until you actually have an audience that has no context when they walk in the door, unless you try it out with them, you really don't know what you're crafting. There are so many layers in your work and they're drawing from so many different disciplines, obviously theater and dance, literature, visual arts, um, culinary arts. <laughs> I mean, how do you get so many layers in? <laughs> Just a piece at a time for me. I mean, I it's like I actually go through a scenario and I usually ask what senses are at play in a scenario and then check that against it's It's like little fractals and then zooming in, zooming out a lot. But for me personally, it's it's about having time in between the iterations to let things sift. Even in the works that we've been commissioned, um, we we intentionally built workshop phases in. And so we would do an intense workshop and then have time for that to gestate and then come back and be like, oh, you know what? This needs a drink to be served in this scene. And if that is the case, then then it becomes a really exciting conversation with uh, a mixologist or a food designer to talk about, like, well, what is the essence of this scene? Um, you know, I remember early on working with the drinks and then she fell and, and being like, okay, well, what is the drink that you drink when you need to screw your courage to the sticking place? What is that flavor profile? And working with an expert to be able to, to evoke that was really fun. 
that sounds like a totally cool creative challenge. <laughs> Not the average request of the person who <laughs> yep. shimmies up to the bar. <laughs> Why do you think there seems to be such a close relationship between dance and immersive theater? In, in our work, it is because we all sort of hailed from the downtown dance world. Like, um, movement was very much our shared vocabulary. Um, and, so, uh, and so for us, I think we started creating, and then at some point someone was like, oh, you're making immersive theater. And we were like, oh, are we? Um, that's one part of it. But I, I wonder if one of the reasons that it is very prevalent you know, I think there's something that allows us to be in a poetic space with heightened movement, with heightened language. And that ability to have a little bit of aesthetic distance affords a different relationship with the audience. There is too much naturalism in that close proximity might also feel very uncomfortable. It might almost be like the uncanny valley that the audience is like, this isn't quite real, but it's, it is real. But when we're in a more figurative space, it gives us all a little bit of permission to suspend our disbelief. I always start every project with dance. I realize that like, I need to understand something through the language of movement in order to understand what I'm making. And then the words actually come almost last. I often think about how movement is like action and gesture and quality and it's a visceral experience and I think that speaks to the heart. It's like the soul of things and connects with people in a subconscious different way. And I think when you combine it with other elements and ways of conveying the story so so that you're you're experiencing it in multiple ways, it really lands, and I think that's what gives depth. It's like when you see something that's embodied through movement, and then later you hear a story told through beautiful words, and then later you see a space that actually also evokes exactly what you saw, you might not realize that you're seeing the same thing three times, but they fit together in this really amazing way, and that's what I'm kind of fascinated by. It starts as a phrase. For me, it's a phrase. It's a phrase of movement or it's a phrase of language, but it's a phrase. And 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 the poetics of like dance and the poetics of poetry, right? Like those two things are they they just immediately go to the symbolic, right? Which I think is is the interesting place to go. And then and then you kind of give it structure. Here's the phrase, here's the structure, right? The things that I recall most profoundly are very imagistic. They're very movement-based things. And there's something evocative about that that conjures memory for people. It conjures all of the what Janine often refers to as the cloak of experience that an audience brings in. You have no idea what that is, but you've opened up a lot of space for them to just channel their own narratives right, right in there, and it puts them at center, which is exactly where we want them to be, right? I think about dance as being the original language, Right, with gesture and body movement. Before we had words as a species, we had those things to communicate with. And dancers understand something about fundamentally about embodied cognition, about communication through the body. And with that said, I, I'm so curious to learn more about what what is the cloak of experience that you speak of, <laughs> Janine? <laughs> 
It's really different. It's really different. But be, before I tell you what it is, I, I have to tell you that um, a while back, Charlie, you, you recommended uh, your podcast with Annie Murphy-Paul. And I haven't read her book yet, but the podcast was amazing. And as I was listening to it, it was capturing, you know, what I call magical beings that I get the privilege of working with. Um, they're incredibly intuitive, physical listeners who can connect with audiences in these magical ways because they're so connected with their own body in space and able to pick up on the subtle nuance and energetic information that people in the audience give off. And so I don't know, and I just had to bring that up because it really like connected with like a new way of describing what we do that I hadn't heard before and like understanding what we do and being like, oh my gosh, other people are telling us how that, how, why this works. And I've just known it works, but I don't know why it works. I just know it works. But, um, so I just, I just had to say thanks for that because I, now I have to run out and get her book. So I will report back. So the cloak of experience. So, you know, I was thinking about, we were talking about the audience and, I think this holds pretty true to a lot of our work that audience members are not coming into our worlds and expected to be someone else. We actually rely on the fact that they are in fact themselves and they're bringing their memories. And then they're also bringing this cloak of experiences, everything that's happened to someone in their life. It has to do with generational things that have happened, where they've come from, uh, what they're their like home life has, we're never going to ever know what that patchwork quilt is that someone is walking in with. And I always, I draw it on pictures as this giant Superman cape that's really long. That's like a patchwork quilt, kind of like in that movie, like Water for Chocolate, when she has the quilt that she like drives off with. That's the magic place that we won't ever know, but we can, we can sort of predict a little bit about it. We can think about things from a generational perspective or gender perspectives or anything that we might be able to think about impacts how someone's going to experience a scene or experience performance. And so I find that to be like super interesting. It is sort of the, the sweet spot in between the audience members having this cloak of experience and us wanting to create work that can in some way almost be a Rorschach um, where they can, they can choose to see whatever it is they want or need to see. And the, the sweet spot about that feels like the ability to both create work that is incredibly specific, but also has the ability to, to have enough space for the audience. And Tom, I wonder if, if you want to talk a little bit about the way that you think about it because it's so beautiful. I might think about it differently now. I, I mean, because I've just been, I've been diagramming these things, right? You know, because I try to make sense of things all the time. And um, I used to think about like a triangle, you know, if you thought about a triangle and like the hypotenuses we're touching, like the, like my job here is to get to uh, like the longest side of what I'm offering to an audience meeting, their most receptive side. And then they, so wherever I start in origin, I'm pulling it out and then they're gathering it and then they're making it mean something for themselves. Um, and now I've reversed it. I think about it a little bit more of, as an, of an hourglass where I'm like pulling all the things into something as specific as I can get so they can receive it in that way. And then their job is to take it and unpack it. Because most of people's experience of like something like Then She Fell 
or any of the shows that they go to that kind of walk them through a, a liminal um, series of, of scenes, they experience it more after. Like they're, they're unpacking it and the meaning for them is coming. The memory of it is getting layered and all of that is actually happening after they step outside of the show because they're just, they're, their intake while they're in there is a little bit on overload, right? And so then they have, they have this very long conversation with themselves or other people. I'm really interested in this thing you just said, Tom, about the audience making sense of it in waves, like after the experience and how much you think about that. Uh, because it's true, you're on overload when you're in there. You're, you're responding. There's so many senses being activated. There's there's such an active role. Sometimes, you know, running upstairs or whatever, you know, you're, you're, you're physically engaged. And, and some of the more thoughtful understandings of what the work's about definitely are happening afterwards in the retelling. How much do you think about that in, in the creation? How, how important is that? It's, it's true of performers too, right? Like, so the performers have to decompress after a show because all the anomalies and all the things that were brand new because everybody that visited that night was brand new is an accumulation of learning about the piece. That's also true as creators. Like everyone's imprinting on the work and it's imprinting on them. So everything is just like a little tornado of like, world building all the time and that's affecting the whole and then of course you're brushing it up and you're keeping the intentions and the beats clear so you're you're not letting it crack the structure but it is filling it to the brim with information and like that's what happens um in the decompression in the in the time that you get to take and talk about it with each other afterwards as performers as creators and if you are lucky enough to have the chance to have that exchange with an audience you learn even more your critics come in you get all this information and it's like you start to understand what it is you've created and then you make some of those choices on purpose right <laughs> and like you say we're welcoming that new little volunteer into this moment and it's going to stay and now we eat the peach in this way as opposed to this other way but it, it grows. It's pretty cool that way. The patina of participation. <laughs> One of my favorite quotes that just came into my life is from um, Watermark, Essays on Venice from Joseph Brodsky, where he says, like, all surfaces crave dust for dust is the flesh of time. And it's like, <laughs> that's my argument for not dusting, but it's also <laughs> like, then she fell. <laughs> so... I know you've been itching to go to this next place, which is to talk about what you all have been doing in terms of having to think about the work so that you can teach it. And I don't mean now teach it to the actors inside, you know, who are taking on a role, but I mean teach it in a more academic setting. What has that process been like? How has that been enlightening for you? It has been very enlightening. I just recently um, taught a class on writing for immersive theater, and it was this moment of trying to teach myself or codify for myself what it is that I had learned. Um, understanding what it is that we do is a really extraordinary process to try to figure it out and to be able to, to distill that down into teachable workshops, um, and, and also then poses these extraordinary new questions like, oh, what does it mean to design for this type of experience? What are the new tools that we need to make to be able to make another experience that operates in a totally different way? 
I can certainly say that like when I've been teaching on Zoom, that opened up a, a whole nother level of learning how to explain and diagram and use slides and like actually put things into place in a much more or organized way. So I think that was like a fantastic learning experience of like how to really share things on a completely different format, like on a platform where we really can only be a talking head. But what that afforded was the ability to make slideshows that use our body of work as a lot of exemplars, like being able to show a video of something or just sort of show photographs and tell a story about how a scene was created. I think I learned a lot about just being really flexible and working with whoever shows up and making stuff that's really modular, which I think is going to be fantastic for the future of working with COVID. Like we just have to make everything flexible and modular so that if someone's out, the whole thing doesn't go down, but we just, you know, reorganize very quickly. So I think it was a really great learning experience. I'm interested in talking about the ideas of intimacy and scale, because those are a constant conflict point for immersive theater where you have a show, you had a show, then she fell with 15 people an evening uh, or, or a production. You go to other shows, I don't know, Sleep No More, Secret Cinema, but they don't have the same level of intimacy and one-on-one -on -one experience as is experienced by your guests. Is it possible to maintain a high level of intimacy or, or connection with the guests and still do things at bigger scales? I think it's a question for me. I, I often wonder what, what can intimacy mean? Um, we created a work called Sweet and Lucky uh, here in Denver. And one of, the, one of the things that as we were working with our extraordinary producers, they, they said is, you know, we want to we ensure that every audience member gets a one-on-one. -on -one. What does that mean when your audience is 80 people? How do you engineer that? You know, I think another question that I've been asking myself is, does intimacy necessarily mean being alone in a room with one other person? Or, or can intimacy be found in, in communal gatherings? Um, and I think really engaging this idea that Janine has uh, of cloak of experience. How can we create spaces in which the audience is able to engage with their, with their memory, with their story? And how can it intersect with that which we're collectively creating? And then how, how as a group of people can we share that experience? Um, and there's, I think there's a possibility for incredible intimacy there. It is a shared intimacy. It is a collective, a collective coming together and gathering in that way. So those are the questions that I'm asking myself. I like that way of define, like asking people to define intimacy differently and to look look for it in different places too, because there is, you know, there's a way to cross fade between things, and you can use technology you can actually isolate someone into an audio moment where it's just them and every single other person, you know, hearing something. And then you can crossfade into community, right? And you can crossfade into a lot of different things because what it comes down to is what's holding the attention. And if you want to achieve intimacy, you can give 60 people a one-on-one, -on -one, but you end up in a situation or 100 people, whatever, but you, you end up in a situation where it's a fast, repeatable thing and I always 
find that it's like a struggle to strike a balance between what is interesting for an audience and what is also interesting for a performer. Because you can have a performer do the same thing over and over and over and over and over, and you can give an audience an amazing experience. And you are killing the soul of this performer. You are burning them out. (laughs) I I mean, it's like, nobody's going to want to do that, you know? (laughs) Like, (laughs) You know, I was thinking about, um, we just came out of a rehearsal process, and in the the midst of it, found ourselves making all pieces that are communal, that have all of the audience for everything. And and I was thinking about that and realizing that, well, of course, like I didn't want to go in the space and create little scenes in isolated boxes because that's been like the last two years of my life. And I don't really want to be isolated in little rooms right now, and nor did anybody in the group. I think subconsciously we all wanted to do everything together from the moment we got to be in that studio and it made something that's profoundly communal, but I think it's really intimate. And I think we're onto something with like having this shared experience that still feels really personal and connected and people feel cared for, but yet they're in a room with, you know, 30 people. So I'm curious, like, I don't know if I can scale that up or, or at what point it stops feeling that way, but there's something interesting about what it means to craft audience experience and to take away all the other stuff and really start with just that. And so we have all these great ideas for immersive spaces and set design, and but all of that is kind of like on the back burner and we're focused really on the audience experience at the sort of center. And I'm kind of curious about how that's going to evolve, but, but it certainly feels really good to be in space with audience. I think everybody feels that from the cloak of the last two years, the specialness of sharing space together. And I'm like thinking about how that's going to create this whole other impact that we probably wouldn't have had in 2019. That's pretty cool. Speaking of space, can, can we just take a minute and talk about how important space is to your creation and your, your creative process? I know in many cases you're doing site-specific pieces, are you also thinking about pieces that are that are not site specific? You know that that can go from black box to black box or uh, generic space. I would guess that we 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 might all agree that that's really a spectrum. Sometimes we're thinking very site specifically. Sometimes we're thinking not in that way initially. But I think that it it feels true that we're all always thinking a lot about whatever space we are in. There is no such thing as a neutral space. There is no such thing as a space where the audience coming in, the artist coming in, that's not impacting what it is. And so I think in the same way that we spend a lot of time, maybe all of our time, caring for the audience, centering them, we're also spending a lot of our time in conversation with whatever space we're finding ourselves in. And and then designing the piece differently depending on what that space is, whether it is a beautiful century-old institutional building or how do you, how do you design sites specifically for the Zoom platform was a great question that, that I and a bunch of co-creators got to ask with Return the Moon. I think we're all engaged in a conversation with space, but those conversations are always changing. I've been kind of challenging myself of 
wondering, can I make an immersive work that's really meaningful and special with none of the bells and whistles of an immersive set? Can it be in a bare room that has four walls and some chairs? And is that possible? And I don't know about that. So I'm still wondering. But, um, but part of that's just thinking about how I've had so many fantastic opportunities to make beautiful work in like amazing spaces and like beautiful architecture and really rich historical places. Um, but the one thing about those pieces is that they're so unique to that site that they can't ever be replicated. But I'm really wondering like, what is the piece that could be adaptable? And like, how could we make something that could fit in a gymnasium, a black box theater, a church hall, like a community church hall, or like a VFW center, or, you know, a grassy space in a park under a tent or like what's the way of being like truly flexible and and can we do it I don't know the answer yet but that's kind of been like something I've been chewing on is um, finding that ability to to be able to like take something across the country and play it out with lots of different communities I mean I think it's one of those huge challenges that people don't fully appreciate of of this immersive form which is uh, how, because they're site-specific, they don't translate, they can't move, they can't be put on in a high school gym, and so they're like sand mandalas. They come, and then at the end, you you blow them to the winds. It's a real, I think, challenge for the, the form to be able to figure out how to, how to be um, reproducible, <laughs> both for the economics of it, because you put so much money and time into the creation, and would love to see it be able to travel, but also just for the appreciation. I mean, think of all the great like Broadway musicals that you saw in your high school because they could put it on as that year's musical uh, all over the country and all over the world. And immersive theater hasn't hasn't really had that opportunity to to be distributed that way and, and remembered and, and replayed. And, and then it also gets into things like leases, right? Like how many landlords want to give a six-month lease that can then extend to 10 years to a theater group? Yeah. Like they, very, they few, very few. Very few want to do that. <laughs> I think, I think there's, there's a lot of entities need to do some shifting. And it's not just the people who make the work and perform the work. It's all the people with all the infrastructures who support and market and talk about, like all the things could shift because the work is like water. The work can change and take the shape of whatever container it goes into. A lot of work can, but the containers are the problem. <laughs> you know, like they're either not available or they're too expensive or they're not willing to program differently. You know, so I, and that's, I'm, I'm not calling any one thing into the space with that. But I'm just saying there's a lot, there's a lot of infrastructure, not just for immersive theater, but for theater, for art in general, that could could do with some shifting right now and be more flexible and permeable. And then work could travel and could live in different iterations and have its time and grow in its own way and develop. So I'm just curious, Tom, what does that mean for you? Does that mean like theaters that don't have all those rows of seats nailed down? Well, I think there are examples of people who have done it very well. You know, like I, I think like that that's the thing to look to is like who has who has like relinquished the control over the space in the way that they always do it, right? 
it's complicated to say yes because you're answerable to a lot of people. And if you have unions, you know, there, there are rules about these things. So there's some negotiation of work that has to happen. But I think a lot of people that really understand the work and how how it is about centering the audience, then then they loosen with you. And then you can also tighten up so that you fit them too. Like it's a, it's a really interesting negotiation to find work that can fit. And and no, and, and when both places are, are, are fluid and malleable, you come up with something really new and exciting, like Ghostlight, and, and what that did for its audience. So just to explain what Ghostlight was quickly, for those who didn't have the pleasure of experiencing it like I did. As someone who made it, not, not <laughs> so exactly oh. Janine, I'm bouncing to you. So, well, Ghostlight was a, a piece that we created, uh, Zach and I were the, the collaborators on that, and we were commissioned to make something for the Claire Tao Theater, but the conversation kind of went like, well, can we use the theater and the backstage and the green room and the dressing rooms and the hallways and the closets? And pretty soon we kind of were in every part of that building. And I have to say, like Lincoln Center, they were so supportive of the idea. And at first they were like, well, what do you mean? And then we did a showing. We spent like two weeks running around and... They let us go downstairs into their prop and costume areas with giant bins. And they were like, take anything you want. Use whatever you want. It was, it was so much fun. And when we did the showing, I think they, they suddenly realized like, oh, you need more spaces. So yeah, we could figure out how to give you more spaces. And we understand how you're going to take audience through all these spaces and how you imagine creating a world that brings you in the theater, but then lets you go right up on stage and into the wings. And uh, they were they were really excited about it. I mean, ultimately, I think we we were really interested in in thinking about the theater as a site and what what are the places that audiences don't normally go and how can we create that access? And then also there's such great stories and superstitions in the theater. So it was sort of a benevolent haunting. In a certain sense, you could say it was about bringing different audience to this, what was a traditional new theater, right? It, it was a proscenium theater. It had all those rows of seats and a stage and, um, and people used to coming in to sit down and watch a show for two hours in, in the theater. And in reality... We spent all the time, we, the guests, running around in every other space available to, <laughs> except for those seats, right? And the thing that I just thought about over and over again was that the finale, the reveal, if you will, at the end of that show was that you had broken us up into these little groups. I can't remember, 8 or 10 or 12 people at a time. Many of these groups running around in sequence, so we didn't even see each other. You, except for at the beginning, you kind of felt like you were just with that small group of eight or ten. And at the very end, the reveal was us. You brought us all into the theater, and and it was like magic. All of a sudden, all the seats were full, and it was like an inversion. Instead of what was on the main stage as being the the finale, it was like. The audience was the finale revealed to itself. To me, that was this magical moment where all of a sudden I just realized, like, how many people are we? Oh, my God, we're a whole theater worth of people. I hadn't seen these people, and I'm now in this theater with them all together at this last moment. It was beautiful. Thanks. 
There was something interesting about ghost light. And when I was at Trinity in Texas, we also used their theater space. That was the space available to us for making an immersive showing. And one thing that always lands is how audiences very rarely get to be in the wings. They, they very rarely get to see behind the scenes of a theater space. And that alone brings so much of a thrill that your storytelling is a whole nother layer on top of that. But just physically being in what's kind of often forbidden space, if you're an audience member, there's so much like excitement about that. But it never ceases to amaze me how the audience members were all saying, I've never been in the prop shop before. It's so cool. And like the costume shop, people just like light up just to be in those spaces because they're so cool. And if you're not in the theater world, you, you, you know, it's really special. So You do original works and you do collaborations or commissions. How does that work and what, how do you decide which to take on and who to work with and what to prioritize? The things I love most almost are the hardest to get going always because people want to corral you way too quickly when they come in with a commission sometimes. <laughs> often not. Often they're like, we're, you're brilliant and, and you should do the thing that you can do here. And we, we've been lucky to get a lot of those, but I'm learning that that runs the gamut and what it means to be curated or commissioned or whatever can mean very different things to different people. So if it's a consultation and I'm there to facilitate and help somebody's idea, very clear for me. Anything else, I have to have my idea at the center of it, protected and, and cared for, you know? Otherwise, it's it's like, I don't, it's almost like there's two very clear things on either side. And there's a lot of mud in between that, that I don't really truck with very often. I think that one of the things that has been lovely is that we have worked in so many different ways that we've learned to look at various opportunities as as ways of, creating iteratively. And so sometimes we'll get a commission for a small something that we can really chew on one aspect of something. We'll have the incredible gift sometimes to be commissioned to create a larger work, which is such an extraordinary gift. Yeah, I think it is always about finding that, finding that conversation with the space, with the presenter, with the producer, and understanding through that conversation who are we creating this work for? Um, who are we inviting it in? How can it be an offering? And then how does that intersect with any of our points of inquiry? Um, the things that are the questions that we don't know how to answer, which I find so often are the things that drive our work. I think I really enjoy collaborating with other communities and other artistic groups that have really different skill sets and what I have. Like, I, I'm really interested in what it means when we combine superpowers or like, what does it mean? Like, you know, for Albany Park Theater Project is the, the group that I've worked with in Chicago. And we've had a, a relationship since 2014. And we're hopefully by next summer going to be opening a new immersive production. I'm always curious about what it means to collaborate with an artist that's completely coming from a different place. Like, that's really exciting. And I was like, welcome that. So I think that same thing happened with VR, like when we worked on Wolves in the Walls. And it was just like suddenly you're in a room and I can be honest and say, I don't really know what you're talking about because I don't speak VR. You're lucky that I could figure out how to put the headset on my head. 
but like just being able to realize what the common ground is, like what do I bring to that to support a project? What is in my skill set when combined with someone else and their amazing skill set? What can we do together that we weren't able to do before? Um, there's something fun about that. Well, I just want to say how much of a joy this conversation has been and uh, how I can't wait to be able to put myself in your caring hands again for another production. Thank you for, for the work that you do. Thank you for the thoughtfulness with which you share how you do what you do and um, look forward to more collaborations in the future. So thank you. Yeah, thanks, Charlie, for having us. Thank you, Charlie. Big thank you to Zach, Tom, and Janine for sharing their stories and wisdom with us on this episode. I'd encourage you to dive deeper into their body of work and follow their future endeavors using the links in this episode's description. My sincere thanks to you, our listeners. If you enjoyed the podcast and want more Faust in your life, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts and sign up for our free monthly newsletter at FOST.org. The Future of Storytelling podcast is produced by Melcher Media in collaboration with our talented production partner, Charts and Leisure. I hope we'll see you again soon for another deep dive into the world of storytelling. Until then, please be safe, stay strong, and story on. Thank you.